to our winter quarter of Sunday School. Uh, for those of you that don't know, my name is Les Newsom. Uh, I've lived in Oxford now for uh, going on about 19 years. Uh, my wife and I have been here working with our denomination's uh, uh, campus ministry. Uh, our, uh, Christ Pres is a part of a denomination called the Presbyterian Church in America, and that uh, organization, that denomination, has a campus presence called Reformed University Fellowship, or RUF for short. Uh, and so I've been a part of that now for almost 25 years uh, and work now as an area director uh, for that ministry over uh, various and sundry areas in the, what we're calling the Mid-South. Uh, and of all the things that I get to do during the year, getting a chance to jump into a winter Sunday school is always uh, my favorite. So this begins kind of my most wonderful time of the year, and not because of Christmas, um, but because I get to come and be with you guys uh, for something like this. Um, for those of you that, uh, that are curious, we, uh, at least for the last decade or so, uh, have made a, an attempt to take a document that represents kind of the, the theological foundation for this denomination uh, and start to try to go through it in big, sort of heavy, weighty chunks. Um, during our uh, sort of semester Sunday schools, uh, we are, it is our tradition to work through books of the Bible. Uh, you may notice that there's an Old Testament study in the fall and then a New Testament study in the spring or vice versa. Uh, and that's a chance for you to do just simple, regular, expositional study through the Bible. It's a great, healthy way to do that. In the winter, however, we try to do, rather than sort of a book-by-book sort of Bible study, we try to do sort of a theological study. In other words, we take a, a theme, as it were, and try to uh, unpack it, sort of describe it, So it's a little bit different in the sense that we're not really going through verse by verse through particular scriptures, but we're trying to do topical studies and looks through this document called the Westminster Confession of Faith. If you want to know what all these weirdos here in this church are about, you need to start there. Uh, It's a great document. It's an old document. It's not probably the best uh, reading experience you've ever had if you're picking it up for the first time. But if you want to know kind of where we're approaching in terms of big themes, that's where we start. So I think probably eight years ago, we did a a study through the doctrine of Scripture. We talked about the doctrine of God a number of years ago. We went through uh, the understanding of Christ, uh, the nature of Christ. Uh, We've done studies through um, salvation and the order of salvation. We've done studies through the nature of the law and what does God require uh, of us. Uh, And this time we come, we're sort of getting to the end of what I would refer to as kind of the fresh material in the Westminster Confession, which means we're probably going to start it all over next year, so just buckle up for uh, the repeat. Um, But when you get to the very end of the Westminster Confession of Faith, you find that there's a handful of chapters that deal with the way Christians deal with being Christians in the world. They'll use this phrase in the confession that we call the civil magistrate. What is a Christian's responsibility to the public sphere? Or, I've tried to put it a little more simply, what does it mean to be the church in the world? And I'm recognizing that there are immediately two things that need to be defined for you. First of all, Les, what do you mean when you say the church? And what do you mean when you say the world? Well, if you can appreciate that one simple little beginning question, I think that you will be ready to dive into uh, the topic we're going to look at this particular winter quarter. 
I will say this just by way of, uh, of method. Um, I have tried to uh, make a plan, sort of make a commitment uh, to finishing us off as close to the top of the hour as I can uh, because we really need some time to process this. Um, the topics that we're going to go looking through, <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed, don't tend to bring out the best in people. Um, uh, you know, um, a number of years ago, we, I, I, and t- I kicked myself for not hanging on to this article, uh, but I remember a number of years ago encountering a, um, uh, 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 an article in the New York Times that was referring to a um, uh, sort of the problem of, just one second here, let me turn this on, um, that was talking a little bit about the problem uh, of uh, anticipating the internet. This was written around 1994, 1995, when you know, we didn't have the internet, kids. Um, and uh, it was talking about the beauty of the idea that anyone with a personal computer, <laughs> little did we know how personal those computers were going to get, that anyone with a personal computer could have a voice. Everyone will finally have a voice. And this article was basically saying, look, guys, the future looks bright because we will at last be able to have a true democracy. Because in that place, when every personal computer is able to sort of give anyone and everyone a voice, finally we'll all have true, everyone will have a say. No one will be left out of this society. So try to pick up in the last two years any article from the Times on social media and where it's brought us and have them say anything positive about it at all. In other words, you know, 25 some odd years ago, people were being like, ah, everyone will have a voice in this new generation. And now everybody's like, ah, everyone has a voice. When are they going to shut up? <laughs> what, what have we discovered? In many ways, you could make a pretty strong case that it looks like culture discovered total depravity. Um, you know, everybody understood that once everybody had a voice, we thought that would be utopian. Well, unless everybody is terrible, um, including us. So we're living in this time where people have not done conversation very well. And I have a hope that we could at least do a little Petri dish in our winter Sunday school quarter of discussing well. And I would argue that discussion well uh, is not about coming to a resolution, but it's about working at listening There are way too many faces and way too many backgrounds and way too many political affiliations in a room like this one of this size for us not to disagree. The disagreement needs to be assumed. What I think is preciously lacking in our world today is the ability to listen and to stop and simply to hear someone and allow some of those kind of like impulses inside of us to be sort of quelled for a little bit. So that's what I like to do is leave enough time at the end for someone simply to just say how they feel. Uh, um, I don't want to answer a lot of those questions, believe me. Um, but I definitely want to try to take a, um, take a swing at them. Okay, so that's where we're headed. That's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at what it means to be the church, to be God's called out people uh, in the world in a place that obviously oftentimes can be very hostile to him. And I think what you'll immediately find is, is that we're experiencing in our world uh, a great divide. Uh, 2016 and 2017 represented for me, in my own personal reading, a chance to grab as many uh, uh, historical biographies of the last eight to ten presidents in American history 
just to see if we can find ourselves with a, an analog to where we are now in the last 50 to 80 years in American history. I, I would make a, a decent case that it doesn't exist. We're on some uncharted territories when it comes to the degree to which we are divided as a nation. And so just by way of illustrating that, I'd like to try to mark that division, and you could probably do it in a thousand different sociological ways, but I want to mark that division between the older generation and the younger generation. Now, what's very fun is when you say the older generation, you don't know where you include yourself in that. But on Friday, I turned 50, so I'm in the older generation now, period. Uh, but I've spent the better part of the last 30 years hanging out with college students. So I'm a little bit of a weird bird. I feel like I'm standing with one foot in both sides for just a second here. Um, But I would like to sort of try to get a grasp over what is clearly, uh, in our times, a land of confusion. And the breach between an older generation, or even if you're old at heart. (laughs) Some of you have embraced your parents and your grandparents' values very, very quickly, very easily, very naturally. Others of you represent a generation from the younger generation for whom uh, your time is now. This is the time where real change. And so what I want to begin with is a real simple, quick exercise in trying to have some sympathy for the opposite side. And so what I want to kind of do is to begin with the young people in the room, whether you're age-wise young or whether you're young at heart, to exercise some measure of loving your older neighbor and having some sympathy for where they have found themselves, I would make an appeal that we live in a time where if you invest in values that were sort of popular among Southern conservatives even even 10 to 15 years ago, the world is almost completely unrecognizable to you almost completely unrecognizable. And I would argue that for that generation, young people, they have never felt quite as alienated as they do when they turn on the television every single day or pull out their eye device and see what the latest headline is coming from, um, coming from the, uh, the liberal media, right? Um, think about the fact that gay marriage is now not only sort of a right, not only a, a, an acceptable form in our world, but it's an understood uh, uh, sort of a, not just understood, but, a, but a, um, a demanded right. The shift in what was even true 15 years ago has been so dramatic. And again, I'm not adjusting for now. I'm not applying any sort of value judgment to that fact. I'm just simply saying that 15 years ago, it would not have been this case. You would not have had guys like Jonathan Ruach, who is a gay atheist, say things like this in an article in the USA Today. He says, I wonder whether religious advocates of these opt-outs, the opt-outs are people who are saying, I want some rights to stay away from the necessity of being behind gay marriage, Um, have thought through the implications. In other words, if you're someone who looks and has some antagonism towards uh, a gay marriage, have you really thought through the implications of that? Because if you associate Christianity with a desire, no, a determination to discriminate puts the faithful in open conflict with the value that young Americans hold most sacred. Did you hear that? There is no more sacred, that's a religious term, by the way, there is no more sacred value that young Americans hold than to to rid the world of discrimination. It's important. 
They might as well write off the next two or three or ten generations, among whom non-discrimination is the 11th commandment. It's kind of fun when other people use religious language. It makes your job as a Sunday school teacher a whole lot easier. He was responded to by a guy who runs in RUF circles named Alan Noble. He's involved in RUF at the University of Oklahoma uh, and writes for them. He says, can traditional evangelicalism continue to exist as social mores increasingly conflict with that tradition? He's asking our question. Alan's looking and saying, how can the church exist among a place where the values have changed the way in which they have? Hmm. Well, given the history of the church, which has spanned many hostile periods and cultures, these fears seem exaggerated. That's a good Christian instinct right there. We're like, you know, our Lord, who was resurrected from the dead and uh, you know, walked on water, said that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. We're going to be okay, I promise you. But it is hard to ignore the implication that the only truly tolerable form of religion in the United States is a private one that comfortably aligns with the country's changing mores. Interesting. Now, again, I'm not assigning a value judgment to that statement. You may be here this morning, and you may be a part of our our little cadre that says, yeah, keep it to yourself. That's your choice. I'm here at this church. I'm involved in the life of this church. That's a personal choice. You ain't got any right to say or critique anything about that choice because that's the choice of the individual. You may think that. I'm not applying a value system to it. I'm just saying where we are. And by simply reminding us that to an older generation, young people, that is unrecognizable. That is completely foreign to the way in which he was taught to think. Um, You even sort of start to get the critique from a lot of people, the nature of our ability to have a conversation, especially on college campuses. And this is my my breakfast, lunch, and dinner every single day, so bear with me. Uh, Kirsten Powers uh, wrote for the USA Today a while back, Conservative white Americans have watched, often fearfully, as liberal cultural elites, <laughs> don't you love the shibboleths? Uh, they get applied, liberal cultural elites, <clears throat> demand that everyone fall in line with their agenda or risk being called a homophobe, racist, or misogynist. You feel that older generation? The concept of persuasion and debate has been overridden. If you want to understand anything about college campuses today, you've got to get this fact. The concept of persuasion debate has been overridden by a quest for immediate and forced cultural conformity. My friend Sally Kahn, the liberal commentator, summed up the left-wing view fairly honestly when she told me in a recent debate over free speech that, quote, if conservatives on campus feel like they can no longer speak against positive social change, good. Catch that? (laughs) That is what we call an interesting social phenomenon. Now, look, I don't want to overblow it. I'll say this. I think there are a lot of educators in our day who are rising up and saying, wait a minute, something's not right about that. (laughs) Because I'm not sure that that's education, right? But yet, then on campuses today, that is the idea that is racing among the world that um, uh, to bring up simply one's particular views cannot be heard. Because when your views are heard, that's hate speech. That's hate speech, and you don't make me feel safe when you say that. And so, therefore, I've had numerous cases, it's simply in the last year, of college students walking past Bible studies that my campus ministers are holding on and hearing what they're saying and then reporting them to the institution about having uh, propagated hate speech. That's not overblown is what I'm saying from uh, Kirsten Powers. 
picked up an article a number of months ago, number of months ago called The Dying Art of Disagreement. It was in the New York Times opinion page <clears throat> where he said this. He says, then we get to college where the dominant mode of politics is identity politics and in which the primary test of an argument, listen to this, isn't the quality of the thinking, but the cultural, racial, or sexual standing of the person making it. Think about that for a second. It's not the quality of your argument. It's the place where you're coming from. It's your, um, it's your particular world you're living in. As a woman of color, I think X. As a gay man, I think Y. As a person of privilege, I apologize for Z. <clears throat> this is the Baroque way Americans often speak these days. It is a way of replacing individual thought with all the effort and actual thinking that that requires with social identification, with all the attitude and attitudinal attitudinizing that that requires. Look, the point is this. like, There's not a lot of healthy discussion that's going on in our world today. It's a lot of sort of political gainsaying, identifying of labels. And what it's doing is it's polarizing us. Have you felt that? Have you felt the fact that there's just not any good conversation going along? Look, so the point is, is that We're in a time where so many people are listening to people's opinions, but they're trying to see through them. In other words, you may have sort of your ideas, but honestly, I see through those because what you're really doing is sort of propagating and pushing forward a a, a particular political agenda because of where you come from, because you're wealthy and white, or you're African-American and poor, or you're Asian-American and and, and involved in this particular area. In other words, it's always seeing through things. It really helped us to remember that old C.S. Lewis uh, adage from The Abolition of Man where he said, look, you can only go on seeing through things for a certain amount of time because the whole point of seeing through something is to see something uh, through it to something else. (laughs) To see through all things is eventually not to see. (laughs) You love it when Lewis rescues you with a solid, solid quote. But the funny thing is, he wrote that in the 1950s. So we're not all that new. And I'll use that as a transition to our next little thing. And that is, how do we love our younger neighbor? See, now, all the older crowd is like, ah, exactly right. That's the best Sunday school ever. <laughs> People are crazy. Kids are crazy. That's the problem in this world, right? Kids have all gone crazy. Um, so let's talk about, though, let me advocate for a moment for the younger generation, to those of us who might get our uh, dander up here for a second. You need to understand that your track record is being questioned in ways in which it never has. In other words, you have a little bit of history that the younger generation is rising up and asking questions about how you've done with it. Let's begin with your racial history. You're living in a world now where your racial history is under a microscope, and at present, you've got African-American scholars and sociologists who are publishing reams of research, reams of research on whether or not there are actual social inequities glaring social disparities between the experience of America that a white person has versus what an African-American person has, or an Asian-American, or a Hispanic-American. And what's interesting about it is, is it's a lot of scientific research that are almost always answered, at least from the larger sort of cultural position, not in the form of like, wow, that is really hurtful. We ought to have a conversation about that. But instead by missing the point. And this is where I'm about to lose some of you. You may not come back to the rest of the Sunday schools, 
that's okay. I don't have a side in the Kaepernick situation. Those of you who don't know, a number of months ago, there was a professional football player, Colin Kaepernick, who decided during the national anthem that he would not stand for it. And he would take a knee and he would sit on the sidelines refusing to stand for the national anthem. And the backlash, it'd be a little surprising for me if you hadn't heard anything about this, because if you, if you have a television and you're live on Sundays, you've heard something about it. <clears throat> what I found interesting about this is, and you need to hear me, I don't have an opinion about that. What I found fascinating, though, is how often or how rarely people stop to say, what is he protesting again? Because we could not get over the offense of the form that he was taking to protest. Follow me on this? Now hear me. I recognize that that, that very well may be in itself an argument to be made. You've heard the sort of thing and you've had this conversation with your own spouse. You know, it's not what you said. It's how you said it. That's a valid thing. I think that's got some point. You may work on how you have to come across. But at some certain point, you kind of got to talk about the thing. So where are we going to do that? And my whole thing that I want to submit to you who are sort of in possession of an older generation sort of mindset is the younger generation is rising up and saying, can we talk about the research? Now, you may be coming and be like, huh, I read an article that said uh, that that research is flawed. Great. Bring it on. Let's talk about it. Let's see whether it really is different. And hear me, un fairly different to grow up in a culture and being an African-American than it is growing up and being white. Can we at least have the conversation? Can we at least talk about it? What's worse, evangelicals don't have a great track record with dealing with civil rights with African-Americans. When we come to the table as people mostly in this room, we don't have our sociological history from the 1950s and 60s to stand upon and say, did we do a good job? That's being called on the table. And actually, I will take a stand on this one. (laughs) We didn't do that well. And what happened is, having sort of failed that test in the 1960s to not helpfully nuance the question of how to deal with being a Christian in the midst of a civil rights movement, the LGBT movement has sort of co-opted the language of that movement and now sort of begun to make it on the same terms. This is now a civil rights discussion for your LGBT friends. So we have to all of a sudden wrestle with the fact of being like, it doesn't feel right on the inside. But understand, this is where the younger generation is. They're looking and asking you, what did you do? What were you standing up for? And when I say you, I mean you to whatever degree you represent your parents' and grandparents' tradition. How did you do with that? And the younger generation has been like, you didn't do very well. Let's take a second one, since this feels so good. How about our sexual history? Your sexual history is being called on the table as well. Pornography use is just as prominent among religious as irreligious people in this country as are divorce rates. So you got to recognize that when all of a sudden a same-sex attracted person rises up and asks for what they believe are simple sociological, political rights. To have an evangelical community stand up and say that no, you should not have those rights means that they will say, well, why would you say that? 
And when you stand up and say, because there are standards that the Bible teaches about sexual behavior. And they look at you and they say, really? How have you done with the others? In other words, it gets called on the table that if we have decided on certain points not to be different from the world, how can we get uppity, I'm choosing my words carefully, how can we get uppity when they bring something to us that sexually is out of our experience? The LGBT movement has gotten extraordinary cachet in many ways due to the fact that the moral voices in our society are themselves being exposed at every single turn. I got to give a small little commercial. Little asterisk at the bottom of the page there. Do not hear me say when I say that, that the responsibility is therefore not to be sexually broken people. That is not the solution. (laughs) The solution actually is to be repentant and honest and vulnerable people. Everybody's sexually broken. Hold that thought. (laughs) We're going to come back to that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, meanwhile, those who protest sexual depravity the loudest often seem to be the ones who have listened the least to those who are struggling. Yes. Okay. Sorry. I'm not going to get lost on that one. How about this one? How about our political history? Um, And by political history, I mean those who would look to their political uh, tradition and say, if only, if only we could get a Democrat in the office, if only we could get a Republican in the office, Locate the conversation wherever you like. You can begin with Eisenhower's drinking buddies down uh, at uh, Augusta National and a failure to press forward the civil rights agenda. You can go to Kennedy's incessant womanizing. You can go to Johnson's inescapable Vietnam morass. You can go to Nixon's uh, law and order campaign. (laughs) Law and order campaign, which collapses in lawlessness in the highest office. You can go to Carter's and foreign uh, policy maneuvers that seem to exacerbate the problems in the Middle East. You can go to Reagan's sort of failing memory about telling Congress uh, that he was using money for the sale of arms for an unapproved war that he was carrying on down in the Central America. You can go to George H.W. Bush failed tax policies. You can go to Clinton's. You can go to just about lots of things with Clinton. Um, You go to George W. Bush's entanglements in Iraq uh, and and the sort of removal of of sort of um, regulation over banks that could have created a suit that brought us 2008. You can go to Obama's social program that fast-tracked the gay marriage agenda and sort of uh, brought about, some businessmen think it's crushing regulation. (laughs) It doesn't matter. It does not matter where you fall. Our own histories, many of us in this room, have lived through enough to see it doesn't matter the political agenda that you bring up, the political agenda that you're putting all of the eggs in your basket. And what the funny thing is, is even just that list that I just did, some of you are kind of like, wait, 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 wait. No. If you're going to emphasize the negative. I'm just simply saying this. Are you really going to attach sort of your political agenda to the thing that like defines how we're going to stand? Look, the next generation, I simply want to say this the older generation, are opening some fascinating doors. In some sense, the social media that you despise so much, you know, it's those cursed cell phones. Not, an, not a week goes by 
Well, there's not somebody in an article. Someone sends me about how terrible those smartphones are for those kids. Destroying this generation. They're all depressed because of it. It may be true. I don't know. But they're opening doors to technology that, frankly, is pretty amazing. I, I, I keep trying to tell people that you know, Monday of this week, I got to have a chatty conversation over the breakfast table um, with um, Foster and Laura Gullett, this church's missionaries to Italy. We literally sat around their table chatting while they were in Italy on the other side of the world <laughs> for about two hours. It was, it was invigorating and fantastic. And part of that sort of drivenness with this generation's preoccupation with technology is creating that kind of stuff. Be really careful that you sort of baptize a Christian version of Luddism. Your know, Luddism is like, I'll tell you what the problem is. It's technology. Technology is a problem. You know, back in my day, you know, <laughs> what's, 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 what's the, the ag guy who I really like? Um, the agriculturalist. Everybody always put, who? Wendell Berry. I love Wendell Berry. I do. <laughs> but I'm not sure we're all going to start gardening uh, tomorrow to raise our own produce. I don't, I, just one of the silly things. This generation has created a social mobility that is unmatched in the last century. And what that means is, is this generation coming up, older generation, has the ability to see things with a broader scope than we could ever imagine. I don't know a college student who didn't study abroad in the last 10 years of coming through the university system. They are culturally astute. They're asking a lot of questions. Okay? Well, if there's questions, (laughs) then there must be solutions there, preacher boy. Now, somebody on Facebook said I couldn't call myself Preacher Boy anymore. Uh, it, was, it was Errol. Errol told me that. That's right. Preacher Man. Preacher Man. <laughs> yeah, I'm no longer a Preacher Boy. I'm a Preacher Man. That's what, it, that's what it is. So what are the solutions? Where do we come? Where do we fall down on this? Well, you know, it just depends on which road you're going to take. Uh, I would argue that there are two sort of broad streams, uh, very broadly speaking, of how Christians have tend to sort of think about what our responsibility is as the church to dealing with this hopeless sort of like the younger generation doesn't understand, the older generation, the older generation doesn't understand. Is there any hope for us? Well, the first thing is the idea that we should fight. We should fight. You know what? Can I do flight first? It's it's not a hard outline. You you can see it from the the cartoon. Um, I want to blind you with science here. Fight or flight. Have you ever heard this as a bad way of dealing with your marriage? Uh, someone will be like, you know, if you're, if you're having conflict in your marriage, you know, typically we do fight or flight. We're either going to do this together or we're just going to disappear and, uh, you know, withdraw, you know, those kind of things. That's actually, I'm not making fun of that. That's some interesting uh, stuff to talk about. And the truth is uh, Christians have wrestled with the same thing. Um, <clears throat> maybe the role for us to take as Christians is to simply leave this world, to 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 separate ourselves from the normal social institutions that uh, uh, sort of function. Uh, The world, as it is, is irredeemable. And therefore, at best, what we can possibly hope to do for is to retreat into a religious community where our sense of the faith is preserved for the next generation yet unseen. You follow me on this? That is, what we need to do is sort of begin to sort of create a safety circle for us. That our children, our values, our way of life is going to be preserved in this sort of safe institution. The most famous and most popular version of this is a book by a guy named Rod Dreher. He's now down in uh, Baton Rouge, but he's spent some time in D.C. and some other places, who wrote a book a number of years ago called The Benedict Option. 
The Benedict option is an option for Christians to simply take the, take the, the, um, the advice of a Benedictine monk that assumes that the best place for you to function in society is in a cultural monastery that encircles yourself around with institutions that will guard you from the dangers of the world around you. Now look, when you first read this, you think to yourself, I don't see that's really going to work. This is getting all kinds of traction. Start following Rob Dreyer, Rod Dreyer on, um, on um, uh, uh, Twitter, and you'll see exactly how much action this guy sort of gets in terms of people's ideas. Uh, David Brooks um, um, uh, wrote sort of a, a, a great uh, version of this when he said this. I should have put this quote up there. He says, Rod Dreyer shares the fears that are now common in Orthodox Christian circles, that because of their views on LGBT issues, Orthodox Jews and Christians will soon be banned from many professions and corporations. You ever had that fear? Quote, blacklisting will be real, he says. We are entering a new dark age. There are people alive today, this is from Dreyer, people alive today who may live to see the effective death of Christianity within our civilization. I would actually change that word Christianity to the word Christendom. In other words, the idea of a public faith where the majority of people share your views in the public sphere may be dying. Uh, David Brooks goes on to say this. Rod says it is futile to keep fighting the culture war because the culture war is over. You ever heard that phrase, the culture war? The culture war is this idea that what was really needed to be done as Christians was to fight the battle of the culture to get Christians elected into political office so we could pass legislation that doesn't violate the consciences of Christians but actually honors their conscience. Rod Dreher saying, that war is over. We lost. Okay? Instead, believers should follow the model of the 6th century monk St. Benedict who set up separate religious communities as the Roman Empire collapsed around them. Look, one of the things that... that look, before you poo-poo that particular option, r- remember that actually that's a little bit closer to what you read in the New Testament. Because the New Testament kind of assumes that Christians were being persecuted. So it's got some merit to it before you sort of take a sweep for it. But that's the flight option. People will engage in that in varying degrees in terms of a Christian response. But then you've got other people who are more the fight option, right? They want to sort of jump in and sort of uh, battle, do the battle in some particular way. The old school sort of fighters is what we might call the religious right. These are the culture warriors. They assumed that throughout the 80s and 90s, if we could just get the right people elected, if we could have enough influencers, we're going to get to the influencers, then all of a sudden our society would really change. And the power with this um, was that uh, it it created a lot of social movements and a lot of awareness that people had about social uh, issues that were going on. Um, But the problem I think that they realized, or may or may not have realized at this point, is that whenever you grasp at power, Power is a complicated thing. And I'm not sure if it's true that absolute power always corrupts absolutely, but it certainly is fraught with danger. Something that if you're confused about, go and pick up the Lord of the Rings and read it once again. And understand that what the ring of power is, is a ring of power. And it's Tolkien's critique of thinking that you can win the world by your great armies. Isn't it fascinating that in the Lord of the Rings uh, story, The only one who's able actually to defeat evil finally is the tiniest of odd little creatures called a hobbit that nobody else would have known. And by the way, at the very end, even he can't do it. An accident of providence is the only thing that finally crushes evil. Ha! 
We're not talking about the Lord of the Rings today now, are we? But, it, but what happens is, is whenever you begin to make power in the political sphere or otherwise, or the social sphere your main thing, you fail to realize that you can find yourself in an unenviable spot of having to defend rather difficult people, um, people who are going through very public uh, uh, struggles, just because you simply agree with their political positions. I think, for instance, of Gloria Steinem defending Clinton in the late 90s, or even evangelicals defending some of the political issues that are coming out today. He said not wanting to go there. I'm not taking a side, mind you. I'm just saying that's awkward. It's awkward for Christians to be in that spot. In other words, for a lot of people younger than the age of 30, they are walking away from the faith because of the age of Trump. And again, I'm not taking a side. I'm just telling you that if you look at an electoral map, this happened, I think, actually almost exactly a year ago. Uh, the guys from 538.com and Nate Silver published a, an article or a, a map over what the electoral college map would have looked like had we only counted the votes of people under the age of 30. Hillary Clinton would have won every single state. Every single state. There would have been no electoral shift. Now, look, again, you may be saying to yourself, see, these kids are crazy. I'm just saying that represents a divide. And that means that you've got a generation that's coming up that is done with your Christianity, maybe foolishly so, but that is done with your Christianity because now it's associated with Donald Trump. You may think that's crazy. It might be. I don't know. But it's the deal. And it means we find ourselves in a very awkward spot. You feel that? You feel kind of like, wait a minute, I don't want those two to be associated. (laughs) But they were. 80%, 80%, as a matter of fact. That's sort of the, that's the old school kind of uh, a religious right kind of thing. The, the different kind of flavor of sort of fighting when it comes to the cultural thing comes, I think, from the Reformed tradition and that more Reformed people would take on. Reformed just means um, the, the theology that came about of the Reformation. Christ Pres would be a, a, a church that embraces Reformed theology. I don't want to blind anybody with science here. In other words, what they oftentimes thought was a, it was a little more subtle view a lot of times people, following the, the example of a, of, a, of a turn of the 18th, 18th to 1900s uh, theologian by the name of Abraham Kuyper, you ought to remember that name, that says that what we really need to do is sort of invade those institutions from the inside out. And as we invade those institutions, the idea is not to get the right Christians in power, but simply to be godly examples within those institutions and see them change from the inside out. That make sense? The Kuiper talked a lot about worldviews and bringing a Christian worldview to bear in politics. In other words, the idea was not to come in and sort of try to gain power, but it was to simply stand up and be a godly influence among the various sort of cross-sections of life and pray that God brings increase and redemption in the midst of that. Does that make sense? Some beautiful thoughts there. And frankly, it's one that I've probably come to uh, embrace Although I think, even think for that crowd, we're noticing some problems with that sort of classic Kuyperian uh, version. First of all, you always run the risk as you enter the world of becoming like the world. I'm going to go in and redeem the porn- pornography industry. Uh, okay, not sure that can be redeemed, but thank you for that. In other words, oftentimes people, you find themselves excusing things that they ought not. I know for a lot of times, even in RUF circles, We've looked and said, you know, God needs godly doctors and lawyers as much as anything else. 
And a lot of times people have taken that, if we're to be honest, after 40 years of doing RUF, people have gone in and have been like, sweet, so I can be a rich person that doesn't care about the poor and still be a, a Christian in good conscience. Or not. <laughs> Got to have a struggle with that. The second thing is, on a large scale, I think by nature, that particular approach to fighting the world is a little bit cerebral. And it doesn't really meet people in the daily actions. In other words, if you think that what we really need to do is to challenge the worldview of people, change the way they're thinking, you're still fighting a battle of their habits. you got guys like James K.A. Smith, who's writing these wonderful books where he's discussing what he calls cultural liturgies. And his point is, everybody has a liturgy. When you got up this morning, ladies, and you put your makeup on, you are engaging in a cultural liturgy. There's a way that you're supposed to look. There's a way in which you're supposed to fashion yourself. A way. We, we all engage in a cultural liturgy by the way we dressed. It has to do with the cars that we drive, the houses that we inhabit. And Jamie is sort of coming up and Jamie, his friends call him Jamie. I've really never met him before, but I've seen him referred to as Jamie. But Smith is basically coming along and saying that there's these cultural liturgies out there that you've got to look at your habits. It can't just be the way you think. It's got to be in your patterns as well. Hmm. Third, sometimes that particular approach to uh, dealing with cultural influence fails to recognize that sin can make it into institutions. It's really not just about getting everybody converted. Because you may have a number of Christians, you may have a, a, a company who, for whom everyone is a Christian on the inside. But yet because the institution has certain rules that it does, it's still doing, working against God's purposes in the world. Hmm. So which road will you take? Are you a fight person or are you a flight person? Well, I know what you're asking. You're being like, well, that's why I came to Sunday school this morning, Les, because you're going to tell us what the biblical way is, right? Well, be very careful about that because the biblical way can be a little bit confusing because there's a lot of times in which you'll have Paul um, talking to people in the public sphere. Paul sitting there on, in, on, on Mars Hill in the, in the latter part of Acts where he's standing up and sort of exhorting people uh, uh, in the midst of all their idolatrous statues in the midst of their cities. There's other times in the New Testament where you'll get this vibe that, no, you really ought to withdraw. You, you go to the book of Revelation, and John is telling you, look, come out of the whore Babylon. Babylon, this sort of picture of worldliness and, and, and evil. Like, your job is to come out of her, my people, and never go back again. It's a quote from Revelation 18. So which is it? In the Bible, you get one side and you get the other. How do you know what to do? Well, I want to finish with this last quote, and then maybe we can talk about it a little bit. This guy who wrote this, uh, Paul, um, I can never can pronounce his name, Trebilco, wrote a book on uh, Christianity in the public sphere, said this. He says, at the heart, then, there is a fundamental contradiction, even an opposition between the gospel and the world. you got to feel that. You have to feel the fact that as Christians, we're... <laughs> We're going to do this. And unless there's some weird, dramatic change between now and the next 20 years, it's probably going to get a little more challenging before it gets better. There's a fundamental opposition with being a Christian in this world and being in the world. Hence, the gospel as public truth. I'm not just talking about the gospel that's between you and Jesus. I'm talking about the gospel that once you and Jesus have gotten squared away yourselves, is then being taken to your job and then to your school and then to your voting booth, and then to all of those places. The gospel as public truth, the gospel in the public sphere, you ready? 
is not an easy word to speak. Why? For it goes against the grain and operates from a different wisdom in the light of which human wisdom is shown to be folly. You ready for this Sunday school (laughs) season? Um, My answer to the question of what is a Christian supposed to be like in the world is simply this. It's complicated. (laughs) And if you came for some simple, clear answers about it, then you probably don't need to come back to Sunday school. But it just might be that we could have some civil discussion or at least some civil listening to each other where the body of Christ comes together, hopefully in the power of God's Spirit, to maybe find some ways which God would have me, maybe not you, but would have me to act in this particular way. Doesn't mean that I'm going to be able to universalize everything to everybody else's context, but it might be that I can grow in understanding your viewpoint, helping clarify a viewpoint, and then being responsible for what God has called me to do. Okay? The church in the world. All right. Here's my question. And I simply would love to hear just from people's general impressions about this. What, what, are, you, what are you afraid of? I'm not talking about the monsters you know, under your bed. But when you look at the world in which today, what, what, what concerns you the most? What unnerves you the most? We'll give everybody else an exercise in hearing you well. That we will compromise the message. Errol says that we'll compromise the message. That all of a sudden we turn into um, uh, a group of people that have no, that, 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 yeah, that we liberalize. And we look and we just sort of mesh and become sort of this gelatinous sort of vague thing that drifts into the culture. That's right. Yeah, that, that, we, that we lose our saltiness. Yeah. Well said. What else? What unnerves you? Yeah, Micah, if you couldn't hear him, just said that the Internet's ability to sort of um, uh, disseminate information in a way that uh, <laughs> suddenly even small little pockets of things can look like they're huge, mass- massive issues. I would warmly commend to you, it's, a, it's, 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 a, it's like a, reading a horror book, uh, a book by, uh, I think it's John Ronson. I know it's Ronson. I can't remember if it's John. Called, uh, So You've Been Publicly Shamed. And he details a story, uh, the stories of a handful of people who once your particular story went viral, um, some ugly things can happen in our societies. You know, it, it, There used to be a concern back in older generations of mob rule. You know, what happens when all of a sudden a mob takes over and they start marching around and they get the pitchforks and torches and we're going to take it. A lot of rationality doesn't always sort of function in that place. Well, guess what? The mob rule is back. Um, And it's a whole lot more powerful uh, uh, than than even the old mob rule because it's not self-contained. It's now... now uh, can go anywhere and everywhere. Um, so it's a fascinating thing. Or, or do we celebrate that because it's now holding people accountable? Or do we diminish it because it's irrational often? Um, <laughs> anybody want to go work for the University of Tennessee in the last two weeks? Um, no offense to Vol fans out there. Yeah, Susan, what are you afraid of? Yeah, is God big enough to, uh, to, to, to swing this situation? Um, <laughs> Yeah, you know, Joshua goes into the land. He's like, there's giants in the land. Um, and, of course, he and, you know, his friend believed, but not everybody else did. Um, yeah, I, I, 
even though you may not totally swallow Rob Dreyer, Rod Dreyer's um, uh, ideas about the Benedict Option, you ought to read him just to get a sense of like, do I need to carve out some space in my mind for that we will not be in the majority? And I'm not really sure we ever were. You can make that argument later on. But mentally, I'm talking about your, the, the way you mentally locate yourself as a Christian in this world. What's going to be like when that actually is like directly opposed? And what's that going to test in my faith in who, my, who God is? What else? Or two? Yeah. yeah, it's all fun and games until it involves your children. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like when all of a sudden you look at, in the face of your children who are like, what, Daddy? Um, and you're like, no, Daddy's worried right now. <laughs> I can't talk. Um, yeah, it's all fun and games. What, what am I leaving? What, what are we preparing our children for? And what, what, what does it mean to equip them? Look, there is no option not to listen to the conversation that's going on. That's the reason why we're going to do a whole Sunday school on it, because we cannot not listen. Because the, the, to, to make a decision not to, you know, la, 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 and decide that all i got to do is create conformity in my children is to invite their own pain. And nobody wants that for their children. Liza. Yeah. It's, there's a frustration. There's a deep frustration, of people for, especially for people who are professional religious people, like myself, uh, and Liza and her family, uh, to watch people walking away from the faith because of um, you know, political you know, connections that have been made, but who we know, we know that they're, 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 they're not walking away from Jesus. They're not walking away from the reality. And so there's this new frustration that rises up even in the hearts of religious people to say, man, is there any way to sort of stem the tide of this? Hey, good, look, we want to start looking at this for the rest of the of few weeks. Y'all... Um, um, you know, sort of put your ears on. Let's do our best to listen to each other and be an encouragement to one another. And I just want y'all to know I'm always so excited about this time. So let's look forward to it in the days to come. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, then, we do pray that you would give us uh, your spirit. Uh, not only did you say that you would give your spirit to whoever asked, but we know that the spirit is a spirit of discernment. And uh, so many times we've got a lot of things that we don't understand. This world uh, is difficult for us, whether we're young or old. Uh, but your spirit can come and give us insight that you have for at least to know what to do with our own souls. And so we ask that you would give us that grace, give us that power, give us that uh, energy uh, for at least the next few months to, um, to listen. If you would do that, Father, would be time well spent. We pray in Jesus' name.